0: What is going on, everyone? It is great to have you back for another episode of Are You a Robot? This is a series where we aim to explore some of the greatest ethical issues surrounding AI and related technologies. To do that, we've gathered some of the best and brightest minds in their respective fields so that we can have conversations, stimulate some of the problems, areas, and hopefully find best practices as we move forward as a collective society when it comes to AI. What kind of ethics need to be addressed? What kind of governance needs to happen? We have also created a Slack community that you can feel free to jump into. Click the link below if you want more information. This is a place where anyone can come, give their two cents, let us know what you're working on. We'd love to hear what kind of ethical issues you are dealing with around technology. And the last thing I will say is that we have an incredible sponsor. Ethics Grade is an ESG benchmarking firm that specializes in technological governance. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here right now. So I got to say thank you to Ethics Grade. All right, let's talk about our guest today, Sebastian Crear and what this episode is about. I originally wanted to talk to him about the government and the role of government that it plays. And we did div- into that quite thoroughly, but I also read a paper that you can check out in the link below and his paper on affect recognition software, which is basically where a computer will tell you how you're feeling, what your emotion is. We dive into all the ethical issues that surround that and he is going to go ahead and give you a bit of background on himself. Let's hear where he came from, what he's about, and just let's dive into it. All right. Without further ado, Sebastian Creer. Are you a robot? I guess to start, I'd love to get a bit of background
1: information on you and hear your story. Sure. So, um, so I'm French, Luxembourger, and Iranian. It's a bit of an odd mix. And um, nice. I came to the UK about ten years ago and. Studied law, went on to work uh, for a law firm in international arbitration. So the time was basically suing states (laughs) rather than kind of (laughs) working for them, and um, and you know did a lot of work on kind of human rights as well in public international law. Uh, But ultimately, thought it'd be uh, more interesting to kind of get back into tech and policy at least that intersection. So went on to do a master's in public policy administration. But um, focused a bit on kind of data analysis, uh, impact evaluation, and mm-hmm. and wrote a lot about kind of tech uh, ethics a bit. And uh, specifically at that time, I was um, looking at how the World Food Programme was using blockchain in um, refugee camps in Jordan. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting kind of experience. And after that, and doing a bunch of things here and there, I ended up working at the Office for Artificial Intelligence, which is um, the UK's kind of policy slash strategy kind of unit for AI. Uh-huh. And um, and in that role, I kind of worked on, on public sector use of AI, uh, regulation, and some kind of international collaboration as well. Yeah, so
0: I had originally told you I want to dive into how governments are looking at AI, how they're trying to create governance around it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I dove pretty deep into your article last night uh-huh. on affect... What is it? um, Action training. And and yeah, the models that basically, for those who don't know, it's where these machine learning models or artificial intelligence will say or predict what your emotion is. Hmm. And so I want to, I really would love to like go deep down the rabbit hole on that in a bit, but I think we should stay true to the original intention for a little bit and talk about govern governments and how they are trying to govern this whole AI movement. Because I was just talking with Charles, who you know, mm-hmm. uh, and he was saying how, listen, the, whole, the first cookie, I think he said, came out in the 90s mm-hmm. and it wasn't until 2018 that we actually saw any regulation around this, and so right. now it's like, if we are expecting governments to be our saviors here, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. I just want to know, like, what are your thoughts on that, and how do you feel governments are doing when it comes to AI regulation, governance, and anything of that sort?
1: That's a really interesting point. I mean, um, I like the cookie example, and it made me think um, if you know. If someone had told me at the time when that first cookie was created, you should start creating a regulatory framework around that, and and you know looking at how do you you know look you know look at privacy and so on, I'm I i do not think I'd, have, I'd be doing a very good job. Um, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be uh, you know applicable now. I'm sure it would have changed quite a lot over time. So I think we're in a similar space to an extent with AI. It's it's very kind of early days, and and capabilities are growing like exponentially fast, which is both a difficulty in terms of regulation, but equally uh, perhaps a reason to. Uh, at least in some instances and um and I guess governance as a whole could you know could, could mean many things uh, there's regulation is one form of governance, but there's also you know soft law there's standards, there's best practice there's um there's a lot of different kind of ways you can do that, but from a government perspective, um I think and so again who what we're looking at is it um you know how government itself uses AI and limits around that or is it kind of how the private sector does, mm-hmm. and if it's the latter well there's different kind of approaches from kind of across the world um the, um, so the EU, as, as many know, you know, since February, have been kind of, well, published this white paper on AI, um, and so their approach was really around kind of looking at how can we ensure there's an ecosystem of trust, uh, looking at things like ex ante and ex post regulation and conformity assessments and so on, uh, and so they took a very proactive and early approach at kind of regulating AI, in fact, all of AI, which is, uh, which is a bit of a you know difficulty as well, I think. Um, given the diversity of AI applications and the diversity of, kind of AI use cases in context, I think it's very difficult um, you know, regulating things in a, in a horizontal manner. Mm. And um, in the UK, however, the approach has been to, um, to leave that to existing regulators. Uh, and you know, there's no, no need of creating a new kind of national AI regulator or anything like that, but rather ensuring that regulators were adequately equipped and able to look at specific AI issues within their own sectors. Um, which is really different, I imagine you know privacy implications in the medical sector will be very different than it will you know than any kind of oil and gas, yeah, and um, I have to be honest, so far, I'm a little bit um i think you know whilst I think it's good to be cautious and and not regulate too fast uh, equally, i sometimes you know i do think a bit more should be done, and um and you know I think. Yeah, at the moment, I think it's a wait-and-see game, but um, but I think there's, there's, it's good that you know states are looking at that, but it's still very early days, and I think it's good to be iterative and, and careful about that too.
0: Yeah, and I think it might help if you can just maybe rewind a bit and let us know what are some of these governing bodies within the government, and I like how you broke it down because it is very true that there's two different ways to look at this in, in the form of government, like how the government is using AI is mm-hmm. one, And I'll get into some article that I read about the politicians using our data in a Mm -hmm. bit. But the other one is how the government is regulating maybe the private space. And you make a really valid point when you talk about how this horizontal regulation, it's definitely, there's a lot, uh, it's probably not the best way to go because there's a lot of difference between a machine learning algorithm that, can predict if something is a fish, and mm-hmm. a machine learning algorithm that can then that will predict how much time I need to spend in jail. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So those two things are almost, in my mind, they're diametrically opposed. But let's mm-hmm. just back up a little bit and let's talk about what are the governing bodies within the government that are looking at AI right now.
1: So there's a yeah, there's quite a few. At least if we're talking about the English government here, there's um there's quite a few. Um, so Firstly, so I mentioned the Office for AI and Office for AI kind of does a bit of a coordinating role and you know helps kind of connect different parts of government, advises kind of the you know, number 10, uh, Treasury and various other bodies. But uh, this is not so much on kind of the governance or the regulation aspect. I think it's more on kind of incentivizing and ensuring that, you know, AI is actually kind of understood and, and used uh, and, and kind of adopted. But there's, um, there's also the AI Council, which was created um, by the Office for AI uh, a bit over a year, I think, uh, ago. And they're made up of representatives from industry, academia, the third sector, and oh. their role is a bit more uh, advisory like they're independent to government. And I think they provide that kind of unified voice of of you know the AI industry, um, whatever that might mean. <laughs> but, they, um, but they do um, they do quite a you know they've done quite a good job so far, and, and a lot of their um, meeting minutes are, are public. And um, and they you know obviously with COVID and so on they they've been you know, very involved in, in making sure that they could kind of corral and and gather you know expertise from from industry and, and elsewhere in academia to, um, to ensure government does a good job in that front mm. uh, whether they did you know, whether the government did a good job is a different question in COVID but um, the other body that was created is the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation and, um, and so they're also um, they're originally supposed to be an arms-length body or at least um, you know independent and they. Um, and, and as the name kind of implies, they're looking at you know, ensuring that um, we can kind of continue innovating and incentivizing innovation, but in a way that's kind of responsible and, and you know, ethical when needed. And so they've, um, they've done a lot of work on looking at, for example, uh, facial recognition. Um, they've published some snapshots, papers on you know, different kind of ethical conundrums in various, um, in various kind of contexts, um, like you know, Smart Speakers, I think, was one of them. Um, and they've, they've gone quite fast, I think, over the, over the years. Uh, and so they you know they're definitely a, a key one to keep an eye on, but otherwise you also have things like the government digital services they um, they're more in the kind of building side of things uh, when it's you know to do with kind of there there's some policy making in there as well but it's more it's more to do with kind of um well the skills and talent and building kind of ai tools and products and integrating kind of machine learning to existing kind of systems uh, um interesting. So these are a few examples, but to be fair, you know there's, there are so many head of data scientists across the board and different kind of departments doing different things. But at least on the governance side of things, I'd say these would be the kind of the main institutions. Mm. Okay. Apart from what we see, it, oh, actually, sorry, we got one that's I think quite important: is the um, the ICO, uh, the Information Commission's Office. Um, so they're the regulator for anything to do with data and information, mm. and so they've also done a lot of work uh, on on this front, given obviously the the uh, well, the importance of data for AI. And. I don't expect
0: you to know this, I'm kind of swinging in the dark right now, but is there communication between these bodies?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, well, certainly the I Council, the Office for AI and the CDI are you know, very well connected in each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. Uh, GDS as well, in fact. When I was at the Office for AI, we, mm-hmm. um, we worked quite extensively with them on a on large AI review. Mm-hmm. So, um, so typically, yes, there is. I think some departments are perhaps, you know, harder to reach than others. And, and you know, you sometimes have information asymmetries, as but... But generally, yeah, I think the communication lines are generally quite good on that front. Okay, mm-hmm. and talking about this white paper that
0: Europe put out and you being having a little bit of the in and the government, mm-hmm. what are some things that are top of mind right now for these governing bodies?
1: Uh, in terms of the EU white paper? Yeah, so and,
0: and it doesn't have to be like, feel free if there's something that you feel is, is very much spoken about that needs some attention... Mm-hmm. Let us know. No, but I think
1: um, it's not too clear kind of what the UK's uh, position is vis-a-vis the kind of white paper. Um, I think the, um, well, the fact that kind of Brexit is happening and the whole, you know, COVID crisis um, since since January, all this means that I think that, you know, it's, it's been, um, I haven't seen at least a lot from the UK government in terms of how they want to want to deal with that, uh, well, you know, the EU's plans. Mm. My kind of gut instinct is that it's, you know, they're not necessarily the biggest fans, but... Um, You know, again, it depends who uh, in government. And so it's very difficult kind of having a unified kind of view on that. But at the moment, I haven't really seen anything done on that front. I think they've been taking a very iterative and cautious approach to kind of regulation and AI. And I think given the, um, you know, traditionally at least the UK's role in in, in EU affairs and so on has always been one of kind of trying to um, um, reduce regulation, but at least, you know, like we're in the the country kind of pushing for more regulation in general. So I assume it's the same in that front here. Mm.
0: So I know that just from reading your papers that you have uh, a bit of knowledge on other governments. And mm-hmm. one of the papers, I think it was the effect, the effect, how do you pronounce mm-hmm. it? It's the Affect recognition. Effect recognition, emotional recognition
1: <laughs> might be easier.
0: <laughs> yeah, the emotional recognition, that's it, is mm-hmm. it tied in China, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of that actually being developed in China. Um, and there's a very good Financial Times article on on um, basically kind of a security expos, I think, last year, which really kind of focused on effect recognition as a tool amongst others to deter criminality and so on. And um, and that's, you know, an example, I think, of AI being used uh, for and by governments. Um, and that kind of opens up a whole different kind of uh, type of, you know, types of problems, yeah. particularly given, well, in the case of China, obviously, we've got broader geopolitical implications, but even if you look at the UK and how they've, um, you know, applied automated decision-making or algorithms, there's there's definitely you know, areas where, where more work needs to be done on the governance side, I think. Um, one thing so, I can also discuss later is the Alan Turing Institute, which has done some, they've done some really good work on that as well. Yeah,
0: yeah, let's get into that for sure. I mean, let's stay on this subject, though, because this was one thing that just jumped out at me when I read your paper, was... If I am walking, so I guess I should give a bit of background on this. It, mm-hmm. Talking about this emotional recognition and yeah. scanning crowds for mm-hmm. their emotion and also like trying to deter terrorism through mm-hmm. these emotional recognition algorithms. And I think it was in China that they were looking at not only these emotional recognition uh, algorithms, but also like the uh, where the eyes are looking and then also the way that you're walking and yeah. the way, like your body language. So so there's a lot that's going on there. But for me, instant or like instantly, I thought, oh my God, I can't be myself in public for yeah. fear of I might be pegged as someone who's about to blow something up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the legitimate fear. I mean, uh, obviously depending where, but I think in, in general, I think the problem with these kind of these these algorithms is that well you know they do sometimes look at you know various modalities like gait and and kind of you know your eye movements and, and body movements and so on, but I think the um, you know it's, I think it's a bit of an extrapolation to say that from from this kind of data you can you can infer internal emotional states and I think like you said if if you actually think that this is what they're doing well that might also change your how you behave and how you walk and how you and so again that these irregularities can also be flagged up and, and lead to to being you know misidentified and I think. It's um yeah it's it's a dangerous tool I think um, yeah well, um,
0: especially when you start to look at how much of the time it gets it wrong
1: yeah <laughs> absolutely I mean it's, it's a very kind of biased technology I mean even if you look at just facial recognition alone you know there's there's a lot of papers out there on on how biased it is on how um how the data sets are very kind of incomplete and therefore you you know, if, if you're from a minority background, you're far more likely to be misidentified and so on. And so the same obviously applies to emotion recognition. It, it's a lot more complex here as well. You've got a lot more kind of factors at play. So, you know, the the way um, a certain culture might um, express an emotion will be very different from another one. And, um, and that's obviously not necessarily kind of taken into account in, in how these algorithms are designed. And, and so if I'm... Um, you know, I was thinking of something actually when I was writing that. Is that I'm, you know, I'm half Iranian, and so in Iran sometimes when you when you say no, you can actually just like nod uh, yeah. your head in a way that looks like a yes. So you know, an emotion or at least a detection kind of tool would say, oh, he's he's agreeing or he's positive or something, where it might not be. And that's you know, yes. it's a super little example, but I think there's tons of these across kind of cultures, backgrounds, and and I think that's why these these tools will be quite um, problematic if if ever kind of launched and scaled.
0: Well, and that's where I feel like the biggest danger is that we train these models and we think that they are okay, mm-hmm. but we haven't taken into account these cultural differences and how that wasn't part of our training data. And so then we get something like that. Like, let's just say it was. it's that simple example of saying yes or no by shaking your head up and down. Yeah. And all of a sudden you can extrapolate that out with like a lot of different things that could be more serious and mm-hmm. how big of an impact that will have and when you're looking at this this data that is only being trained it's very much one-sided data yeah. you don't get the full picture and yeah. then when you use that as being like the basis of fact because mm-hmm. it's very was it in your paper also that you you talked about how it's so much easier for us to think that if a machine learning algorithm says it, then we just think yeah. it's fact.
1: Yeah, exactly. Computer says no. I mean it's yeah. the type of thing that um, that that you know we've seen in the past with kind of policing sometimes where an algorithm might tell someone to, um, you know, or a policeman that, well, this is his own or this is a person you know, higher risk or something. And and they might not necessarily kind of question the output, they might not, you know, just might just take it at face value. Or if there's you know it's not enough kind of data literacy or something, they might also not know how that decision is being taken. And so, you know, it's it's um, for, for you know if someone who just sees technology very broadly, might think well just like a calculator, perhaps you know I just yeah. put the, the data in and I get the answer, that's it. You know what, what is there to question? And I think this kind of uncritical reliance is, is potentially going to be a problem. And and um and there's a lot more. You know I think there's like you say these these kind of um, how you design that, these kind of algorithms, what they're used for. Think that there's, there's a big question here, you know. If are you going to try to look, you know detect someone's emotion, make inferences about their, um, you know, how likely are they to be violent or something? That's just it's you know it's it's not feasible. You can't do that with with data about someone's face moving or something. <laughs> yeah, and there is one that I think it was at work
0: that mm-hmm. volunteers could get. Oh, let me just see if I can find it real fast. It was where they were being. Looked at for their stress levels. Yeah, and and I think it was like if they weren't stressed enough, they
1: they <laughs> could potentially get told to work more. <laughs> so that was yeah, that was an example I've I've read in an article uh, in China where where it wasn't really, really stressed enough. But I think it was you know you kind of track and survey kind of people's uh, you know movements and everything, and and from that you can very quickly make you know well you can control your 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 workforce. Um, and and you know yeah there were examples of I think people were being told you know you're not working enough get back to work or something, and and with the same technology again that's that's one of the interesting things with with you know yeah you know, most technologies how you, how you use it really you know it is at the end of the day also a tool, so you know like PwC I think were experimenting with uh, assessing kind of stress levels and at least ostensibly the idea was to say. Um, well, you know, these, this person or this, you know, they're a bit overworked, stressed, maybe they need a bit of a break or something. But you could, I, could eas- I could easily imagine this also being used, uh, you know, for, for the country purposes. So this is why you need, you know, I think solid internal governance and, and trust, really. I think trust is a key ingredient to, um, to ensure these technologies are adopted. So otherwise, you know, why, why would I try to make myself, otherwise all you try to do is just games. And- <laughs> yeah. And so how does that
0: trust in your eyes, how does that become a reality?
1: Well, it's 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 difficult. It really depends again on the use case, the context. But in terms of you know, you know just macro principles, I think transparency is an important one. I think um, you know it's kind of important to know who's working on what, what they're trying to do. Um, you know, what are the um, there's uh, I'll give a quick example about from Twitter for, for the transparency element, but but the and otherwise, I think kind of ensuring that these kind of systems are designed with the users uh, with the users in mind. Because ultimately, that's going to affect them. Yeah. Um, ensuring you kind of also bringing in the voices of people who might not be, you know, as represented, the people who might be unduly affected by these things. So there's a lot of thinking that has to go through the design process, and and that needs to be communicated. That needs to be seen by people to ensure that you know they can say, well, you know, I, I trust them. Um, you know, if, if some random company that I don't know kind of builds an algorithm or something that kind of affects my life, like why would I necessarily trust it? Given the many ways, uh, you know, an output could be biased or problematic or harmful. Um, you know, it's obviously not all. It's like that. you know, it's really depending on, again on context and and on the use case. But but frequently for these, risk, these use cases that are a bit more high risk, I think um, there needs to be ways, mechanisms, whether kind of legal, technical or otherwise, to really kind of signal that trust. Um, and I mentioned Twitter. You know, they, there was this kind of scandal a few weeks ago of um, of their kind of um, algorithm where they you kind know, of recentered faces on on the on the timeline, and it would kind of always recenter towards the white face. But if you had a black face in there it wouldn't recenter. It would just go straight to the white person's face when you kind of uploaded a picture. And, and you know, Twitter's response was, well, we've tried to kind of mitigate, we've checked for bias, we tried to do things to mitigate it and so on. We haven't really seen that, but, you know, quickly, you know, try to address the fix and said that we'll be very open and kind of about what we're doing transparent about what's gone wrong and, and the way we're addressing this. And I think that's, I think, the type of attitude that's kind of helpful. I mean, I'm not saying that the response might have been, you know, completely sufficient, but I think it's a good start to say, well, we got this wrong. This is how we've done it before. You can have a look. And also, this is how we'll do it going forward. And we're inviting more kind of, you know, scrutiny of that. And I think that's the kind of, you know, attitude on a governance level, I think, that, you know, fosters more trust rather than saying, oh, it's, you know, it's just, you know, <laughs> or just, well, just not doing that really, or at like trying to push back and, and being too defensive. Yeah. Yeah, which we have seen in the past or complete secrecy around it yeah exactly yeah yeah.
0: so I could see that for sure now the the idea of I think you talked about different areas need to be regulated more closely Mm -hmm. and it was these very high risk areas right like I think there are some you know okay I understand that the example that you just used of Twitter is It's not cool. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, nobody's life is being ruined because a picture wasn't centering around them, right? But there are machine learning models right now that people's lives are being ruined. And so is that the role of government to step in and say that we need to make sure that this is absolutely squeaky clean before we can even allow this? happen because I know that in, in the US it's even the government that is implementing some of these things. Yeah.
1: So Yeah. I mean I think it depends like you say. So for example, you know, when might be a situation where we want something to be squeaky clean before deploying or testing. Um and I'm thinking about you know lethal autonomous weapons or, or you know the use of, of AI and for example the NC three, these kind of nuclear kind of control and so on. It's these are areas with, with you know a high level of risk and that do require I think a lot of kind of ex ante work before just, you know, waiting for harm to happen and trying to address it later on. And I think for, like you say, you know, the Twitter example obviously is, is, is really bad, but there's it far worse kind of outcomes when, for example, the government might use um, an algorithm or automated decision-making to decide whether you get bail or not. I mean, the famous kind of yeah. example everyone's been talking about for the last few years is the Compass uh, algorithm in the US. Yeah. Um, or equally, if a bank kind of, you know, um, provides loans on the basis of kind of data and automated decision-making again. You know, you want to be careful, and and I think in these instances. I mean, this is, I'm not going to start saying now. Oh, yeah, specifically loans and finance need to now be regulated by the FCA or something. I don't, I don't know that, but but I think there's, there's certain areas where the where the scale of the risk and the and the potential impact do, do, you do require a bit more scrutiny from a particular regulator or kind of government, or more than others. Um, so yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, and so along those lines, what policies right now? do you feel need to go into effect from uh, a governmental level?
1: Well, there's a few. I think one of them is, um, you know, I, I do think that it's, it's useful and important for there to be a certain level of oversight and check on how government itself uh, you know, develops and deploys um, automated decision-making. So we've seen, for example, earlier this year, the kind of scandal around the A-levels in the UK. I mean, that wasn't AI, but it was kind of automated decision-making or an algorithm at the end of the day. And, and you have similar kind of risks um and so um and so i think it's good for there to be you know some sort of institutions i mean keeping an eye on how government uses it and 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 you know where there's a kind of a balance of power that i think in general is you know is a, is a good principle and and is also beneficial to governments themselves because that allows you to then you know ensure and tell people well this is being checked there's a level of kind of independent auditing if you want and um and that allows people to trust the system a bit more, whereas you know, for the A-level scandal, you know, you didn't have any kind of body looking at that, or scrutinizing that. It just kind of went wrong, and everyone got really angry, and then they had to stop it. And for those um, who
0: don't know what the A-levels scandal was,
1: I think broadly, yes, um, I think government had an, uh, an algorithm that was because of COVID and everything to to help alleviate the um, or at least make it easier for fatigue and so on. I think they. Um, Essentially, found a way to um, automatically kind of grade uh, A levels uh, for students based on kind of past uh, past grades and a bunch of other kind of variables, and so you know you, you can quickly see why that might produce outcomes that are potentially biased or, or just kind of reproduce um, you know historic kind of well, unfair kind of um, uh, dynamics, but the. Um, so yeah, that was essentially kind of automated grading for exams and you know these exams really determine whether you get to university or not or whether you get to you know, a good job in the future. Yeah. And so yeah, you want to make sure that these are kind of robust. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. And so these are things that they get just, they slide by and then mm. it's like, oops. And we realize after the fact that this wasn't a good idea. And so yeah. now the repercussions of that I imagine I, I'm not sure what happened after that. What did all those exams just get thrown out, or well, um, they weren't even given exams, right? That was the whole point of it—the automation so. of it. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Yeah, they weren't given exams; just kind of gave them a grade. Essentially, that was a you know a predicted kind of that's your that's what you deserve. But the um, but I think uh, I haven't really followed since. I think they just essentially stopped uh, and kind of you know um, backtracked entirely, which is good. But the um, but you know nothing has been really done to ensure I think that this doesn't happen again, yeah. um, and I think this is what you need to do: is not just kind of respond to every crisis, you know, in the, just have a system in place so you can systematically address these things. Yeah, exactly. Exa- and again,
0: this is something where okay, it is it's a bummer that it happened, but it it didn't kill a hundred or a thousand people, right? Mm. Or it didn't ruin anyone's lives. For the long term, because they eventually just rolled it back. Yeah. But there are machine learning and there is AI in play right now that is ruining people's lives, and then you can't just roll it back.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, you know, I mentioned Compass earlier. That's a really interesting example because, you know, obviously the Compass is an algorithm that was developed by a company called Northpoint and used in uh, in the US for to assess essentially whether a defendant in a in a court will should be getting bail or not. And think you get a score between one and ten and so on. And and the issue here, I think, is an interesting one because it wasn't so much just about uh, bias, right? There's definitely the, well, just, just the issue is that ultimately the data set is biased. And the um, bless you. And so the, um, so the data set is biased, but uh, that means that then when you start making predictionary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got some questions around fairness that, that pop up and that have important repercussions on people's lives. So in this instance, you know, um Northwind was simply saying, well, no, this is a colorblind algorithm. If you get a six a score of six, it's the same whether you're black or white. It just means the same thing. Whereas uh, an investigation by ProPublica, investigative journalists, would say that actually, no, what matters here, or, or at least one, one of the important factors, is um is the kind of false um, false positives. Uh, if you, because of this kind of historical bias, you've got, um, if the system makes an, an error, a mistake, it'll make it far more for kind of black people than it would for, for white people. And, um, and so I think, I forgot the exact figures, but you know, if you were white and you, know, you had a 20% chance of getting, um, you know, being unfairly put to jail or, or not, um, not being released on bail, but if you're black, it was something around like 46 or more. And, and that has impacts on people's everyday lives. That means if you're black, you're far more likely to be victim of an error from these kind of systems. And, um, and you know, how do you address that? Well, it's a, it's a tricky one as well, because different mathematical definitions of fairness are not always compatible, and you can perhaps recalibrate, but then that means scores don't mean the same thing. So there's a lot of kind of policy and kind of normative or social questions around these things that are very hard to answer. And, and I think this, this compass algorithm is a good example of, of you know, bias or at least harm, actually you know, affecting people every day and, and, and having long-term consequences for their lives.
0: Well, yeah, and that's where I just keep coming back to. Okay, if we can't get it right, mm. and like you said, it is so tricky. It is so complicated. Should it even be there? Should we even be using it?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, not everything needs to be automated, <laughs> is the, yeah. but the um, and I think you know there was a, a Washington Post article. Um, I forgot. I think it was their. Is um, it was Monkey Cage blog? But they um, they were talking about like, well, you know, at the end, maybe the solution is simply just not having. The, the the kind of this bail requirement and you might have a different policy i think they were suggesting something like electronic tagging or something but but you know it can be creative and think a bit outside the box as to you know how to deal with this kind of particular issue um and so um and so yeah there's certain areas where you just might not want to use an algorithm um, and right now i think perhaps people trust um you know might trust judges more than they might trust an, an algorithm making that decision yeah
0: yeah and so this is again going back to the whole idea of what the government is regulating Shouldn't that be like the first thing that they make sure doesn't
1: fail hard? And (laughs) yeah, I think you know that in policing and in the military, and and you know, exactly probably kind of finance as well to an extent. But you know, as in the usual areas where things you know require more scrutiny and oversight, I think it's the same, right? For when you use algorithms, If, if you're going to automate human behavior, fine, but then if you're automating human behavior in a very risky area, then that's probably where you need more. You know, regulation, legislation, guidance, best practice, oversight, scrutiny. Um, now, whether that, you know, whether something needs to be a regulation or whether it needs, something needs to be voluntary or whether something needs to be then checked by a third party, you know, there's different ways of, of doing that. And, and I think these are the questions kind of being asked at the moment by lots of people in, in AI policy. But, but yeah, definitely, these are important areas to kind of keep an eye on. And so how
0: effective do you feel like the regulations that are in play today are
1: well that's a, a really good question because I think I haven't seen a lot of, um, a lot of work on that specifically so for example when the EU kind of suggested an entirely entirely new kind of paradigm around kind of AI regulation and um, I, I didn't see any kind of assessment of existing laws legislation you know directives regulations and so on and whether they're sufficient or not whether they address these risks and and whether there are gaps and I think that's an important exercise that needs to be done at one point or another um, and, uh, you know, you've had some kind of uh, some cases that went to court recently, you've had one with, I think, the Home Office, and their kind of, I think it was their um, their visa, well the algorithm kind of to determine who gets visas or something, but and that which ended up being, um, oh, I'm not sure if that was the one that I went to court, we had it as well for like, um, facial recognition with the New South Wales Police. But, you know, for, for a lot of these things, you can't just wait forever until lots mm-hmm. of little court cases come in, and you get precedents, you know, over a period of 10 years. I mean, in in that space of time, things will have changed quite massively just because of the rate of, of progress in the field. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I think right now whether the laws are sufficient, I mean that's an exercise uh, that needs to be done. Like, is the Equality Act two thousand and ten enough to warrant for kind of biased outcomes for most AI applications? It's it's very hard to say, and it'll depend on, on a lot of things. But, but I haven't seen that exercise done. And I think that would be a useful place to start.
0: Mm. So so that exercise and anything else that you feel like could be valuable for where we are at now in 2020, 10 years later than than this 2010?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on, on what front, but, you know, for example, um, I think there's, um, there's certainly a need for a certain degree of perhaps reform in, in the civil service or in, in government as a whole to ensure that, you know, there's a right level of kind of training and skills and knowledge, because, you know, most of the machine learning talent, engineers and data science, you know, they don't go and work for government. At least that's not the first uh, port of call. Um, they'll, you know, increasingly they'll be kind of going to work understandably for places like DeepMind and Google and Microsoft and Facebook and so on. And, and you know, what kind of sometimes worries me is that these places have um have a lot of, you know, excellent talent there, but government might not. And and you've got a bit of an asymmetry, you know, if, if I, if, you know, if I'm not talking about the UK specifically here, but in general, if, you know, if you take a, a regulator and you place them in kind of, a deep and tell them just look and make sure things are, are okay there. Um, I'm you know I'm not sure to what extent they'll be able to do that. There's there's not enough um, kind of there's not talent really doing that there. And so um, and you need to have ways of either, you know both attracting people, training people as well, and perhaps exchanges with the private sector. I think the the US has a, a scheme called Tech Congress, I think, and and that seemed to be quite a successful one at kind of placing people from tech into policy and vice versa. Um, and I definitely need, think there needs to be more exchanges on these fronts. Um, in fact, there's a very good talk by Jade Long um, uh, where she discussed, I think, the um, the fact that you know where AI is being developed and the forefront of this technology is really in private labs. And so the governance will come from these labs as well, not from governments. And I think that's an interesting point and one that raises important kind of questions.
0: Yeah, and actually, Emily, who we just had on here, uh, Emily Winger, was talking about how important it is for machine learning engineers or data scientists to take ethics classes and get that education so that Mm -hmm. it isn't just like, it's not a whole foreign thing Mm. and you're not just expected to know that, like uh, it's a sixth sense or something.
1: I think it's a it's a two way thing. I think I wouldn't expect necessarily a data engineer now to get a you know a huge long degree or something in, in ethics and and you know social sciences or something. That's um, there's also you know a element of interest and whether you know you have the right skills for that as well and so on. In the same way as I wouldn't necessarily you know expect a policymaker to suddenly get a machine learning degree to to understand right. machine learning. But but I think a certain level of kind of you know literacy and understanding uh, is definitely useful and required. So you know, that's the the data you're using and kind of cleaning and and feeding into an algorithm. Um, You make lots of decisions and choices along the way in designing these products and that has impacts on people and understanding how that could affect people negatively, harm them, the ethics around that, the acceptability, the consent element and so on. This is probably important for a kind of data scientist or engineer to understand, at least to a certain extent. And to be able to also say and think, well, there's potentially an issue here and I know I can raise it with someone. Uh, potentially, you know, experts in the field or something. Um, Because, you know, the the data science also don't necessarily all have the legitimacy to kind of make ethical decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, They need to be aware of these things, but they're not going to have to be the, you know, the other people who have to be involved in that process. And I guess the other side of this is also, you know, when you look at policymakers or people in in social sciences, I think a certain level of data literacy is also important to be able to kind of talk about these technologies and and their impacts and and what can be done about them in a way that's kind of realistic and not just, um, you know, yeah. Well,
0: that was exactly my next question was like, I'm sure you saw when they got when the US government got all of the CEOs <laughs> yeah. onto a Zoom call. We went. As <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's happened before, right? when they like called uh, Zuckerberg to Congress yeah. and And one thing that becomes very apparent when that happens is how little the policymakers understand. About yeah. what is going on with technology in general, mm-hmm. and so how much faith do you have in that bridge being uh,
1: formed? Um, right now, not much because I don't see that much being done. But I agree that it's an issue, and that you know, I think a lot of people in politics and policy tend to be generalists, um, which is a very useful, um, kind of profile, you need journalists, you need people to kind of understand different communities and different kind of roles and incentives and so on, and be able to work around that. But equally, I think, um, you know, I would think that it's increasingly more and more helpful to have specialists in some of these roles. Mm. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't expect a kind of a minister necessarily to be a, an AI expert. I mean, that's not their role and that's not what they should be doing. But I think when you look at their advisors in the civil service below, I think you need to have people in there that can also give them the right advice on this type of stuff. Uh, and let them kind of understand these issues uh, more than than what, what the kind of status quo is. And as you said, you know we've we've had examples in the past of of that going wrong. I think in the UK the. Um, an example I like well, that was when I think Parliament invited um, that robot Sophia. No, was it Sophia? Was it it's another one? Um, but one of these robots that basically don't use any AI and kind of had a weird <laughs> fake conversation with it, and it was just a bit awkward and and you know, it kind of you know, highlighted the um, yeah the level of understanding of what AI really was there. So the um, so I'm, I'm I'm concerned to an extent, but I think there's loads that can be done, um, and I think. Um, and you know it'll be interesting to see I think um, both the private sector doing things on that front and, and the third sector with like civic tech kind of initiatives and so on. But but it's you know an area ripe for for disrupting. Mm, mm, exactly. And
0: now switching gears a little bit and going back mm-hmm. to this emotional recognition paper that you wrote, I th- thought it was really interesting, and I wanted to dive in a little bit more on how you said that these algorithms like. The emotional recognition models are mm-hmm. feeble and prone to abuse. And yeah. what kind of abuse have you seen or what are they prone to?
1: Well the abuses and, and how they're being used, I think. You know, principally is is how, you know what can, in what context are you use that. I think, you know, if 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 you want to potentially use an emotion recognition kind of algorithm on a large crowd of people in a shop to see if they're kind of, you know, happy broadly or something, or, or if that's probably okay. Or at least there's, there's, you know, a few risks of them. Um, but then yeah, when it's you... It's still creepy. It's absolutely. It's very creepy. <laughs> I wouldn't want the vegan, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I guess the harms are low. And if you're using that to kind of look at one single individual and, and their kind of face movements and the fact that they've kind of coughed once or twice or something, that means that, ooh, they're, uh, you know, a risky individual or something. And they, you know, how has that been abused? I mean, in China, there's, there's clear examples of how that's been used in, in Xinjiang and, and various other regions um, and how people kind of get arrested on, on these grounds. So that's about, you know, how they get um, abused. It's really about uh, what context you use them for. And and feeble, or at least like, you know, it's, well, they're, they're just very kind of, it's very, um, they're really not very good. Like, I think, you know, the, the, um, I, in the paper, I kind of used that, um, that example from a, a paper from, I think it was Lauren Rue, who, who, um, who looked at, you know, whether, um, I think they used, uh, I think, face plus plus on, on basketball players, you know, white basketball players and black basketball players. And and all the black basketball players were, were said to be um, unhappy or aggressive or, you know, negative characteristics, essentially, whereas the, the white ones didn't. And and so, you know, just imagine this then being used at scale in airports everywhere in, in, in everyday life. And I think that's what kind of sometimes scares me a little bit about um, AI is, is really like lots of different kind of discrete applications, narrow applications all across the board, that kind of lead to these systemic loops. So there's a another, okay, I was giving a bit of a tangent we can get back to, but what I, an example I found very interesting was um, research by Facebook actually on object recognition. Um, so, you know, you have tools you have on your phone to, to kind of detect an object. And, and what they've done is they looked at, you know, object recognition datasets, a lot of them were skewed. First of all, towards kind of richer countries, and and that means then. Well, if I'm using kind of my object detection tool and I'm in a kind of you know in a poorer family in in kind of Sudan or something, it's not going to recognize much. <laughs> Whereas if I use it in in California, it's going to recognize everything. And and so you get these other ways, things are you know these kind of biases, the feebleness, and these problematic algorithms kind of feed and, and scale and amplify existing kind of structural inequalities. And I think that's a that's where I'm a little bit concerned over the long term, whether it's emotion recognition or object recognition or or anything else, these kind of things amplifying and feeding off each other in the long term. Mm. So, um, yeah. And one thing that
0: I always come back to is who's responsible when these technologies are being misused like that, like you talked about in China. And I I think about the... You can use any kind of technology for good or for bad, right mm-hmm. so is it, e- it so it is very easy for the company who is creating this to say, "Well, we never intended for it to be used like that, so then they can just push off all the blame and say that's not our problem that's not yeah. we're ju- we just made it right like just the same way that the gun manufacturer can say, well, I didn't intend for someone to go shoot up a school with my gun, mm-hmm. right? So who is the one ultimately that is responsible when we talk about like what China is doing right now? How can we say, is it, is it the manufacturer or the one who is making that technology that should be held responsible? Is it China itself, the government, because they are putting it into play? Who's well, left I holding think that?
1: I think it's the, um, well, you know, first and foremost, it's the state, right? In the same way as, you know, for the A level scandal in the UK, you know, who's to blame? Well, it's the English government. Um, similarly, how AI is being used to control populations in China, well, it's the Chinese government. Now, so in terms of, you know, direct responsibility, I think these are the actors, and we should kind of, you know, not kind of look at others in small, you know, logic. You know, we should definitely look at larger companies, but there's going to be loads and loads of companies taking their place, smaller ones that we don't necessarily know about, and so on. So, in terms of the companies, I think well, they can be um, uh, they can be kind of accomplices, They can be um, participating in that in that kind of dynamic. So the gun manufacturer, well, they're not going to start selling guns to children because they know it's probably not a good idea. Um, and if I'm a big, you know, um, I don't know, like CCTV um, company, well, I, I know that if I'm going to sell it to the government of Xinjiang, it's probably not going to be used for you know uh, beneficial purposes. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think you also get a part of the responsibility as a company, and I think that's. Um, that's part of, you know, this, the pressures, the demand from consumers of, of them kind of not well, ensuring at least having the right safeguards so their kind of products won't end up in these situations. And there's definitely a, a level of, of you know of, of control and a level of kind of decision making we can make to, to decide where things go. Hence why Amazon, IBM and the others decided to like you know, pause or at least not sell their facial recognition systems, I think, to um the kind of to ICE, the immigration enforcement kind of authority in the US. Mm-hmm. Um so I think you know, that's a worthwhile pressure. Um now whether they're responsible directly for how the tool has been used, I wouldn't you know I wouldn't say so. You don't go and, and sue a, well, I was gonna say you don't sue Philip Morris for people dying of cigarette cancer, but actually that's being done. So <laughs> maybe that's a, a counter argument to what I'm saying right now. Yeah. But but typically, you know, I think the um the corresponds lies with the state and then you know for companies. Well, you should have. You know, companies will just sell if they're allowed to do it. They will, and and so it's also for like for for people for governments to ensure the direct frameworks to ensure that this doesn't happen. So, in the US, you have the Magnitsky Act. You have like you have different kind of ways of being able to like sanction individuals or ways to like uh, you know well to forbid companies to deal with certain entities. And I think you can do that uh, on a broader scale and for AI technologies as well, particularly given the risk of dual use
0: and the time that it takes for a technology to come out,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a bad actor to use it improperly, mm-hmm. and then for some kind of regulation to come out behind that to curtail that, yeah. right? Because if it's left up to the companies, we know, as you just said, companies are they're for profit. And yeah. So they're going to try and make the money as much as they can. And then especially if they know, well, yeah, I, I never intended it for to be used like that. And they have mm-hmm. that excuse. And so they're not going to be expected to take the moral high ground. Yeah. Uh, if they can, they, if they want to, then great. But they're not going to be expected to. So mm-hmm. the time from the technology to come out till there's actually proper regulation in place, do you feel like that is too long? And how can we
1: shorten it if you do? Or yeah. it, is it good right now? No, no, it's definitely okay. I think it's, it's it's a bit too long. Again, you know, it depends on what we're talking about specifically. But for example, in the context of of you know facial recognition and and you know, I think you have um you know, obviously I can't talk on on behalf of, of China and the Chinese institutions what's going on there, but hmm. but you know, they've they've had these algorithms kind of uh, detecting people based on kind of um racial characteristics. So, you know, differentiating Uyghurs from Hans and so on. And um and you know, I don't think they're intending on regulating that anytime soon. But but in you know, let's like take an example here in the UK or something. If um you know, if, if you've got facial recognition being used by the police, um, you um, it takes a long time to get legislation in place. There needs to be a lot of debates in parliament. Needs to be you know debates in okay. civil society level. You need to um, you know a lot of things need to happen before that kind of gets put into place. And, and I think there are kind of important safeguards in the process itself as well. You don't want there to be kind of an authority that just kind of regulates in in the space of you know a couple of hours when needed, or unless it's a uh, it's a, some sort of kind of military, but but in, in most contexts you don't want that. Uh, but I do think it's a bit of a. It does sometimes a bit t- take some time. Now, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I also you know I said in the beginning of the conversation I think we're regulating a lot of these things uh, takes takes time because these are very new technologies. We need to fully understand how they work. Who is to be regulated? What is exactly the re- the requirement? Because even if you say you know we should regulate this, well, what does it specifically mean? Is it does it does it mean that like you um you know which actor is to be regulated and and what are the limits? And and I think designing that takes some time now. How do you ensure it's quicker and more agile and efficient? Um, I think there's many ways, but one of them is really ensuring that existing national regulators are adequately equipped, adequately skilled, um, adequately staffed to be able to look at these things and to raise these issues as soon as they arise, or at least to scrutinize them. And the FCA is very good at kind of, you know, going into um, the financial sector and, and... Finding out whether something is is you know acceptable or not, and and you might you know need the same kind of level of capability for for AI type risks and, and harms. Um, but I really think it's about kind of you know upskilling, and and I guess that's also part part of why a lot of governments are really investing loads on skills because right now there's a big gap between the demand and the supply of, of machine learning talent. Mm. Um, so I think that already would be a, you know a great step forward in accelerating this, and. Um, And also, you know, there's a lot being done in civil society Um, and I think listening to them and ensuring they're in the room and having conversations with these groups is is already really, really important because, you know, these risks are highlighted. Um, Sometimes it doesn't really, you know, it's out there. You just need to act.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I find it fascinating your idea of the thing that could be really dangerous is these very narrow uses of the technology and there's so many ways that we can use it that it's really hard to stay on top of each one of these Mm -hmm. and so you have to have almost a machine learning algorithm that will be able to stay on top of it all (laughs) at the end of the day you you never know what it's going to be used for a or what is coming out that is new Mm -hmm. and then how is it okay you may see it now and Mm -hmm. you may say as a like one of these um, regulatory bodies or these groups say, okay, yeah, that's cool. There's It just goes in one ear, out the other, right? And you say, yeah, yeah there's fine. You don't really think much of it because you don't see the negative ways that people are using it yet. Yeah. And then you see them and then, oh, it's too late. Yeah. And then maybe you see them too far in maybe they've been it's been happening for too long, right? So I find that that really interesting how you look at it as there's so many different narrow uses of this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We really need to stay on top of all of these different narrow uses, but that's a very hard thing to do.
1: Yeah. Well I think there's a balance to be struck. And um, I think you know and another thing to, you know an overly kind of cautious approach or like you know taking the precautionary principle too far also leads to potential kind of harms as well I mean, regulation has also been you know the cause of problems and harms in the past you know lots of examples about the fda and so on and and I think you know finding that balance is 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 really about kind of prioritizing things and and this is why I like looking at things from a sectoral or a vertical perspective as well is that you know. I'm more concerned about lethal autonomous weapons or the use of AI in policing than I am perhaps about you know, AI being used in, um, in social media, actually. That's, and that's, you know, that's a controversial thing to say right now to an extent, but, but I think... Especially
0: after a, the Netflix documentary came out. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: But, <laughs> but I, I do think you know, you've, you've got limited resources, you've got limited kind of um, time manpower to to like, deal with these things, and so might as well go straight to where the, the harms might be the biggest and the largest. Um, and so, you know, criminal justice system, um, the, um, the surveillance, all these kind of areas, I think, are worth kind of looking at. And that's, you know, that's also just looking at kind it of nationally. Um, and something else that kind of worries me more generally is also, um, I guess, a, a broader international context is how mm. a lot of other kind of emerging economies are going to be using these technologies. And they're not at the moment. But, but you know, China, for example, has, has a lot of kind of data sharing agreements with with states in in Africa, for example, like I think Zimbabwe, and um, and what that might mean, and and what that kind of leads in practice in terms of how the country then later on perhaps democratizes uh, the, the pace of kind of liberalization and reform and so on. I'm I'm kind of worried about these international implications as well, and obviously for the populations there, for kind of that are in these in these countries. So, and, and how do you know deal that? I didn't quite get that. What what is what is that? So sorry what I, what I meant is you know the for example the export of, of surveillance tools to yeah. um, to lots of countries that currently don't necessarily use a lot of AI but um you know how will AI be used in, in the rest of the world and what kind of model will be the, will they be taking is it perhaps one that kind of focuses on rights and and ensuring the responsible or is it one that's a bit more on the Chinese side of kind of you know c- control at least to an extent right China just mm-hmm. doesn't only do that there's a lot of great applications of AI there as well but but I mean there's there's a big question of how that will be used to kind of control, I think, populations across the world. And I'm someone who's very interested in things like democratization and liberalization. And, and I wonder how these tools of control, repression, surveillance will potentially slow down the pace of liberalization and democratization or, you know, creation of rights and so on in, in various parts of the world and how that might potentially strengthen or weaken authoritarian regimes. Uh, but that's more of, you know, I guess a, a long, well, medium-term question. But, the, um, but, yeah, it's one of the many ways I think you many kind of facets of, of the issues of, of AI yeah. policy and, and governance.
0: Wow, that's fascinating to think about. And it's quite mind-blowing. In fact, I, I hadn't even pondered that at all until you say, yeah, well, there are these data-sharing treaties or, or uh, commercial agreements, policies. Yes. Yeah, commercial agreements that are set up and it makes total sense that if they have that in place already, then you're probably going to be looking at who's giving you this. You're going to be looking at what kind of frameworks they have in place. And you say, well, you know, China's doing it and it's working out for them. And so it's going to be corrupting this idea of freedom. and, and, And on the other side of the coin is this idea of how you're saying, look, too much regulation is not a good thing. Either, we all yeah. know that. So, how do you find the balance? And the balance, the key things we need to find the balance on are the main factors that you're talking about, like nuclear weapons or mm-hmm. things that have a lot of potential for danger and yeah. harm.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, like you know, the monitoring of behaviors of large crowds, you know, tracking people, uh, you know, mapping, all these kind of things I think can have a really bad effects. And there's a, um, there's you know there's different predictions about how kind of all this might be used by authority in governments and 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 you know there's good grounds to believe they could use it quite successfully as well you know there's um, more kind of homogeneity within certain populations around the world and that means potentially you know, facial de- detection tools might work a lot better you know my fear is you know what if it does work <laughs> like there's there's, there's 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 many fears if it doesn't work and there's also fears if, what if it does work what do you do then um, and so um, yeah <laughs> gotta gotta find the right areas to kind of invest um Efferson, the um... completely.
0: So I've got one last question for you, and then I'll I'll wrap it up.
1: Okay. I want to know, Seb, are you a robot? Um, not really musically, perhaps. I, I like um, <laughs> like a lot of very very robotic electronic music, but um, but uh, otherwise, usually no. I don't think I am. Um, at least that's what I tell CAPTCHA. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. What what music have you been getting into? What is your robotic taste of music? Lots well, so of
1: electro, uh, ni- early nineties electro, techno. You know anything that was influenced by Kraftwerk, really. <laughs> yeah, nice, amazing. Been,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate you sitting down, taking the time to enlighten me on all these facts that are they're they're happening, right? It's mm. happening right now. A lot of us don't know about what is happening. A lot of us don't know about this part of the world or this little sector of the world that is really uh, there's a lot that's going on and mm. we we need to stay up to date on it. And yep. so you are helping us stay up to date on oh, that. And I really appreciate that.
1: That's very kind. Um, but it's you know I think there's and there's loads of other groups doing really, really excellent work out there. Um, you know places like uh, CSAT at Georgetown University or the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. There's, there's really loads happening. and I think it's it's good that different groups across the world are really kind of keeping an eye on this and, and raising this risk. So I, so yeah, commend that. And I think it's an area for, for growth for sure. I think there'll be more and more need for kind of the scrutiny of these types of systems in the long term. Yeah,
0: exactly. As machine learning keeps getting all this funding from all these big VC firms and <laughs> there's new applications every day on how it's being used, we also yeah. need to be looking at how we are going to governing that and what the ethics are behind it so yeah absolutely
1: yeah that's been great
0: thank you again i really (laughs) appreciate it and we will talk to
1: you later sounds good take care see ya